Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linadnuzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. How are you doing? I am well, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. I'm very much invigorated by the sun, I have to say. Yes, it's quite it's quite a nice quite a nice change, isn't it? Yeah, it's wonderful because November gets a really bad press, and actually today it's just completely beautiful. It is. Oh, well, that's nice and upbeat of you. Well done. Well, you know, all the all the trees are in their autumn beauty, as it were. And, um, you know, there's there's the sun and there's blue sky. I have um, a rose bush that is in full bloom at the moment. And oh, I don't know man. if that's quite odd or whether that's normal. It's really weird. The poor old, I mean, it, when I do that, I have to stop doing it. But my son told me to stop doing it because I go, oh, my gosh, that's in bloom. And he's like, <laughs> oh, no, really? And he really over it. So I have to stop doing it. And actually, um, the um, wonderful um, Montague Don said, you would spend your whole time saying, oh, hang on, that's not supposed to be flowering. So we just yeah. take advantage of it. The roses are so confused. Yeah, just try to enjoy it. Yeah, I've still got roses that are out. And the dahlias were very late this year. Should we talk about this for like the whole podcast? Yeah, I feel I feel I should probably say that it's not just going to be you and me rattling around our gardens um, today. <laughs> today we are joined by Toby Lichtig, the TLS's fiction and politics editor. Hello, Toby. Hello. Uh, and by David Horsepool, who looks after history, among other things, sport as well, I think. Hello, David. Hello. Hello. Uh, welcome one and all. Uh, and we're all here because it's time for the TLS's, I'd like to say famous, legendary, something like that. The TLS's Books of the Year Roundup. Yeah, it's legendary within the TLS. Does that count? Well, legendary always makes me think that it doesn't actually happen, doesn't actually exist, but it, it, it does. Um, it does. It happens every single year. Um, <laughs> and a bunch of esteemed contributors tell, tell, tell us what they've been most impressed by. Over the past 12 months, that's that's the gist. But uh, David, you put this feature together and it seems to get bigger every year, does it? I mean, how many do we have this year? I think it seems to get bigger every year, but 
oddly enough, I think there are exactly the same number of people this year as there were last, i.e. 65 people, which is still probably quite a lot. It's a good number. It's impressive, isn't it? And thank you very much to all, all the contributors who contributed. Exactly, drawn from around the world and across uh, disciplines. Shall we have a quick recap of the rules then, whether whether or not they are adhered to? Well, I asked them not to go on too long, so uh, to give me 150 words. And um, what I say is they're welcome to choose more than one book. We prefer books published this year. You would have thought you wouldn't need to say that, but... <laughs> TLS readers you often, um, and contributors you often do, because they're always reading, you know, Proust and so on. Well, we exist on different timelines. Yeah, exactly. And they can be in any language, published in any country. And we do try to remind contributors, I'm quoting from my own email here, that we prefer it if your selection was not the work of a friend, relation, partner or close colleague. Again. <laughs> David, I wonder why you put that in. <laughs> I, I don't think the literary world is known at all for log-rolling, favour-doing, back-scratching, or anything like that. And certainly we have none of that here at the DLS. I've never even heard the word log-rolling used in any context other than this sort of context, apart from the true lumberjacking way, I suppose. I still don't really know what lumberjacks do, but I think that's how they shift them down the river but um that's how is that how they get them down to the river yeah or on the river on the river and along it (laughs) if anyone has first-hand experience of actual log rolling please do tell us what it is because we only know the second-hand inferior literary type Um, and some people seem to impose their own rules on the game don't they i'm thinking of mary beard who um she chooses a museum or or gallery catalogue every year yes well i think Mary, uh, being rather a senior academic and who's interested in her subject very much, so is inclined to choose a classical uh, book, but then realises that nearly all of them are by friends or colleagues, um, (laughs) which is fair enough. Um, So she religiously (laughs) tends to choose books which aren't really... Um, you know, single author works or, or, or whatever, um, and, and yeah, tend to relate to uh, more or less abstruse exhibitions in Greece and Rome and sometimes further afield. Which has the added kind of benefit of, of giving these things that otherwise don't tend to have a very long shelf life, you know, they tend to disappear when the exhibition does. It's, it's nice to give them a slightly longer life. Absolutely, yeah. No, I, I like her contributions very much. For the fullness of the picture, the one that she's uh, mentioning this year is 1821 before and after Greeks and Greece, Revolution and State. And it's a vast, uh, I think, 1,200 page catalogue of a commemorative exhibition at the Benaki Museum in Athens, which explores the origins of the revolution because it's the 200th anniversary of the Greek Revolution this year, um, the uprising and its memory uh, and what happened next. Um, So that's the first one. But here's how we'll proceed from here. In the first half of the show, we'll point to some of the, uh, we think, most interesting nominations. And then in the second half, we're going to humbly offer our own. So, Toby, um, would you start things off, please? Yes, um, I'm very happy to start things off. Um, I am actually going to start at the beginning with David Abulafia. Um, not because I couldn't be bothered to read the other 64 entries, I promise you. <laughs> nobody, nobody was going to suggest such a <laughs> No, but I just thought I'd nip that in the bud in case, you know, someone started thinking of that. Um, but because 
he has selected, uh, well, he's selected three books, but one of them is The Passenger by Alexander Boschwitz, um, Ulrich Alexander Boschwitz. And this is a novel I read earlier this year. Um, it's, it's brilliant. It um, is a rediscovered uh, German novel uh, that was written in, in 1939, published in 1939, um, by this forgotten author. Uh, the reason he's forgotten is that he died three years later. He was a, uh, a refugee who ended up in Britain and then was sent to Australia in the way that many enemy aliens, so-called enemy aliens at the time, were. And on his return back to Britain, I think in 1942, his boat was torpedoed. And he'd written two novels by this stage. One of them was called The Passenger. It wasn't called that then. It was called The Man Who Took Trains. Um, and he had various revisions. There's a, there's a, there's a long and complex backstory to this book. Um, he had another version of it, which which got lost as well. He had various revisions, which which sunk at sea. But he'd also sent many letters to his mother about his revisions for this book, which ended up in this archive, sat in this archive for many, many decades. Um, they, along with the novel itself, were sort of rediscovered in Germany about four or five years ago. It was published a couple of years ago, I think three years ago, perhaps. Anyway, um, it has been translated uh, this year for... Uh, for Pushkin Press, translated by Philip Bohm, um, and came out. And it's actually caused quite a stir. I mean, I think, it, I think it's the only appearance in Books of the Year, but it's, 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 it's certainly got a fair amount of coverage. It's basically it's set during Kristallnacht. Um, so, you know, it was written very soon after Kristallnacht, and it's, it is set in the days during and after Kristallnacht, um, and basically features this uh, German businessman who sort of doesn't, barely even considers himself Jewish and was sort of almost quite dismissive of, of his other Jewish Berliners, but he suddenly realises that his time is fast uh, coming, coming to an end and he's basically on the run. And he's realised that his safest means of remaining in Germany is just to be in transit. Um, and it's this extraordinary, feverish, uh, slightly absurdist, farcical, um, but also disturbing uh, theories of journeys crisscrossing Germany as the net closes in on him. And it's really, really brilliant. Um, and it's, it, it, it's apparently the first literary representation of Kristallnacht. I don't know whether that's true. That's what the book, you know, that's what the, the in, introduction to the book claims. But, you know, as, as a historical document, it's very interesting as well. The first as in it was, it was written the soonest to be written afterwards. Exactly, yeah, exactly. I mean, there'd obviously been various journalistic reports and the rest of it, but it's the, you know, it, it came out, you know, months. I think, it, I think it was written in a month. Um, and I, and I, I, this is not the original version. This is the revised version. So I, I imagine it was mm. slightly more all over the place, the first version. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it came out, I think, maybe seven, eight months after Kristallnacht. So it's, you know, it's, it's the first literary representation of Kristallnacht. And it's, it's, I, I would you know, really urge anyone, not even just with an interest in that period, but just <laughs> interest in literature full stop to read it because it's really good. It's really, really good. That sounds fascinating. So that was a good choice, I think. Um, uh, his other choices are interesting as well, actually, David Abelafia. There's, um... You really didn't get beyond David Abelafia, did you? No, I didn't. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the other, one of the other uh, two is um, by Lia Ipi, I think that's how you pronounce it. It's called Free Coming of Age at the End of History. And it's, it's a memoir of growing up um, in Albania, in communist Albania. And I am interested in it because I actually went to see her speak. Um, and she was fascinating about that. And I have the book, but I haven't read it yet. So I won't talk at length about that. Um, but anyway, he, he has good choices. And that, I mean, that, that one's come up in one or two other people's selections as well. I think uh, Terry Apter mentions it. 
She does, yeah. And we, we reviewed it, I think, a couple of weeks ago, two, three weeks ago. Misha Glenny um, reviewed it and um, was very full of praise for it. It's, it, it looks, I mean, I, I, start, I actually started it the other day. It looks really, really fascinating. Mm. Um, and she's a very, she's, she's a very, very, she's a philosopher, um, but it's not really about sort of philosophy. It's, it's a thing that's very much a memoir. And it's, it's yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting looking window onto that period of history. Um, so that's Abulafia. Do you want me to go on with another one? Or... Go on, I'll give you one more. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, the other one is, it's actually Sarah Moss's choice. Um, uh, and it is the novel Burnt Coat by Sarah Hall. I, I must confess a vested interest in this because I am I'm interviewing both Sarah Moss and Sarah Hall um, at Hay in a few days' time. Um, it's the Hay Winter Weekend. And they, they, both of these Sarahs um, have written these pandemic novels. Um, not an easy thing to do, you know, when you're sort of essentially writing about the real world around you. Um, and I'm very pleased to see that Sarah Moss likes Sarah Hall's novel a lot. because That's going to help your weekend, isn't it? <laughs> Could have been very awkward otherwise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I can say both are, both are great. And the, but this, the, the Sarah Hall novel, which we gave a slightly disobliging review to the paper. Not, I mean, maybe not disobliging, but not entirely obliging. So I, I hadn't read the book when I was editing the review and I sort of felt slightly worried about the whole thing and then I read the book and it, it's totally brilliant I, I think it's really really beautifully done I won't give you the sort of the long the long pricey but it's basically it's it's sort of set in a an alternative England in which there was a pandemic which was much worse even worse than our COVID-19 uh, of the past 18 months has been and it's been far more destructive and there has been a breakdown of civil society and it's this woman sort of looking back on that period she's a sculptor um, and she had a love affair during this period, and she's sort of looking back on the country and her own life and affair and her art and her relationship with her mother, and it's just really beautiful. And, um, you know, there will be many pandemic novels, and there are already many pandemic novels, but this is certainly one to go and get if you haven't already got it or read it. I like the sound of another um, book chosen by Sarah Moss, um, I, she says, I was diverted and delighted by Jackie Polzin's Brood, which is published by Picador, a novel in some ways about raising chickens, but also about being in America and loving and grieving and coping when things fall apart. And I think partly what I like about that, apart from the chickens, um, <laughs> is the absence of the word pandemic. <laughs> I suppose you really have one <laughs> pandemic in, the, you know, in, in her entry. So that's, that's, that is quite enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, Lucy, whose contributions did you most enjoy? Well, we're we're doing it on the basis of who's, if it was someone's, um, am I getting my seasons mixed up? When we do it for summer, it's whose um, holiday bag would you like to to rob? I don't know. I don't think we ever really clarified. I'm sort of imagining who, if they would, if you had to be gifted books by these people. Oh, yeah. um, whose, Whose gift would you accept? Most willingly. Yes, I'd be very happy. So I don't have to actually steal it out of their bags. They're going to give them to me willingly. They're going to give them to you willingly, I imagine. Good. I'm pleased. Then I would like uh, our own Ruth Skirt to give me Colin Jones's The Fall of Robespierre, 24 Hours in Revolutionary Paris, because apparently it really is. It goes hour by hour, um, the, the, the day and night of his downfall, um, which I think I would find really fascinating. Uh, and I mean, it's all very grim. And is the revelation that it wasn't as planned as as people tend to think? Yeah, that it was that stuff kind of happened and, you know, there were movements and it was by no means a done deal. I don't think what was going to happen. Um, and uh, I mean, like quite a lot of um, 
the revolution. David knows this much better than me. Yes, it wasn't. It wasn't you know coldly necessarily planned out in advance. It, it was based on happenstance and movements and um, just all sorts of things. And it just, I think, it just sounds really fascinating. Um, another present I would like from Gabriel Joseph Avicii, because he chose um, The Tomb Guardians by Paul Griffiths, who um, has been on the podcast a few times and, and writes for us. Uh, and I read um, Paul's, I've read the one before that, Mr. Beethoven, his book mm. about Beethoven, which is wonderful. So I would very much like to read The Tomb Guardians, which is about art. I think it's about people sort of looking at a work of art. I'm going to be this very vague here. And then the people in the work of art. Is it something about how how looking at art is a kind of a loophole in the otherwise uh, difficult act of maintaining concentration or something like that. That sounds a lot more clever than what I said. So, yeah, I think it's that. No, it actually makes sense what I said. <laughs> I would also, well, I've, all, I've already got Paul Griffiths's, one of his own books of the year was Jan Swafford's Mozart, which I have got and have read a little bit of and is and is just lovely. It's just lovely and makes me feel very good because it, um, He's very keen on the magic flute, as am I. And a lot of people are very sniffy about the magic flute. Um, so I'm happy to have Jan Swafford's backing about that. You are very keen on the magic flute, aren't you? I, I am. I can't help it. It's <laughs> terrific. <laughs> um, two more. You're allowed one more. Oh, one more. Well, go, oh, go on then. Two more. Well, I don't know. I gave Toby three. Oh, two more, but I'll say it very quickly. Go on then. Okay. One, Fungi by Merlin Sheldrake. Andrew Motion chose it. It's just all about basically, basically... Fungi, like we couldn't really exist without them because they are so prevalent. They, 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 they are responsible for, um, for decomposition and for fermentation and for feeding the trees and for all sorts of things. And they're completely fascinating. Mm, he uses the word in intelligence very, um, very cautiously, doesn't he? But it's difficult to think of a better word for it. Yeah. Well, they send, I mean, it's like, it's like all that stuff we learned about the trees. They send signals to each other. They just simply do. They communicate. I mean, by almost any definition, they communicate. He says it's groundbreaking, which obviously... He does. I love that. Hilarious. <laughs> Actually hilarious. <laughs> and the one more that I would like to read is in Ray Tallis's, Raymond Tallis's selection, Humankind, A Hopeful History, by the Dutch historian and journalist Rutger Bregman. He says his assault on the dangerous, destructive assumption that a positive view of humanity is shallow while pessimism reveals the profound truth about us is a tour de force, um, which I think is very interesting. And I've long been interested in that. And I would like to read a whole book about it. There you go. I did too many and I'm sorry. Well, I, I was expecting you to choose um, Peter Thoneman's selection of Alan Garner. Are you not an Alan Garner fan? I just assumed you would be. Yeah, no. As soon as I was reading back over it, I thought, oh, I must say Alan Garner as well. But you were... You... Go on then, say Alan Garner. I, also Alan Garner, please. <laughs> <laughs> you can look out for our review, by the way, of, of Alan Garner in, in next week's edition, I should say. And the book is called Treacle Walker, is that right? Yeah, it's a great piece, actually. And Peter Toneman describes it as a deep excavation of a single acre or so of land on Garner's home turf of Alderley Edge. It's all about Alderley Edge. Everything is always about Alderley Edge. He says he's a novelist who writes like an archaeologist thinks, which seems a very good way of putting it. Yes, and, and he's also able, he's able to do that amazing thing, Alan Garner, of sort of all superimposing the past on the present, and it's fine. Do you know what I mean? You can sort of make sense of it. David, whose selection or selections have captured your attention? 
Well, I liked uh, Lisa Hilton's selection. I haven't been reading very many novels this year at all. Um, and Lisa Hilton has chosen a novel that I'd like to read uh, by Catherine Heine uh, called Early Morning Riser. Um, and the reason I've chosen it is just because she sounds like my kind of novelist. Um, she sounds a bit uh, like Anne Tyler or Elizabeth Strout or even Miss Munro. It's that kind of um, depths of ordinary life, mm. um, but fantastically kind of sensitive and also rather funny. Um, and um, I had a look at sort of previous reviews of, of Heine. I saw that Claire Loudon, whose judgment I trust very, um, very much, called um, her first collection, a funny book that should be taken very seriously indeed. And Lisa Hilton says about this one, she says, um, it explores two decades in the life of Jane, a primary school teacher in small town Michigan and her partner Duncan, the Don Juan of the Midwest. And you know, how could you not want to read all about those people? Um, and apparently it's wincingly acute. Uh, so uh, that, was, that was one that I uh, was immediately drawn to. Um, and another almost opposite direction, slightly different uh, vein is um, Frederick Raphael's one of his choices, which is the Greek lexicon, um, ancient Greek to English. Um, and we had a review of a lead review by the aforementioned Peter Toneman, who's a classicist, um, who isn't particularly well disposed to big reference books, because he says you can get most of what they got on them, got in them on the internet. Uh, but even he called this book a truly astonishing piece of work. And the reason is that it's more than just a sort of updated dictionary. Um, James Diggle, the editor, and his um, colleagues have basically reread the whole of ancient Greek literature and sort of re-filtered uh, in their definitions of, of the whole language from that. And um, the inimitable Frederick Raphael uh, calls the dictionary boldly outspoken in malis partibus. Of course he does. Of course he does, using Latin to describe a Greek dictionary. Who wouldn't? Uh, and I'm <laughs> sure, pretty sure what he means by that is that it's good on the rude words. <laughs> um, and noticeably, I mean, anybody who uh, learns ancient Greek for more than about five minutes, especially if they did it as a silly adolescent, knows that there are lots of rude words in uh, in, in ancient Greek, um, I'm not sure if they're still there in modern Greek, um, and the ways they were translated in older dictionaries is always rather sort of coy. Um, and uh, Peter Toneman has a good example. He says that the word sauloproctiatio, uh, um, which was translated as to walk in a swaggering way so as to make the hinder parts sway to and fro, Hope you're with me. Uh, it's now simply translated as to wiggle one's ass, which makes a bit more sense. Hinder parts is quite something, isn't it? It sounds like Little and Scott made up their hinder parts. Your hinder parts. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think it's sort of as if you're a horse sort of thing. Um, and I have I have sort of held a copy of this <laughs> book in my hand because I bought it as a present for someone and then had to give it away. Uh, and it is fantastic. It's an amazing um two volume um, thing and 
I mean, it's uh, uh, Cambridge University Press, and it's fifty pounds, which seems to me for such an enormous uh, work of scholarship of decades and decades, considering quite a lot of small monographs are about that much. Mm. Actually, amazingly good value. Indeed, for all the joy it will bring. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. So, what you did. David, is the classic thing of, of getting a reference book and looking up the rude words. Is that right? Well, I didn't look up the rude words. No, not you. Uh, both Frederick Raphael and Peter Turnerman. <laughs> although Frederick Raphael also uh, uh, remarks about um, a reference to Aeschylus that he, he cleverly makes, uh, which I half understood. But I, I shall be pursuing other things like that if I can um, borrow back in that classic way of giving a present that you hope to get back yourself borrow back the uh, the dictionary the point about swear words um reminds me of paul muldoon's pick um of, of books this year he says in the 10 years i spent as poetry editor of new yorker i came to marvel at the work done by the magazine's team of fact checkers the poet's mistake by erica mccalpine published by princeton is a winning catalogue of flaws and fuck-ups that includes robert browning thinking a twat was an item of dress for a nun. Yes, very good, isn't it? <laughs> I think somebody told Robert Browning that as a jape and then d- didn't. <laughs> I'd love to see that letter. No, I think it's actually in a poem of Browning. Oh, it made it through. Yeah, I think um, someone will, will leap onto Twitter and tell me I'm wrong, but I think that's right. And it can only mean that he thinks, you know, it's like a wimple or something. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, it, I'm sorry really isn't it? <laughs> dear <laughs> what about your books dear what uh what, what would you go for well um I was sort of hoping that David might mention this book um because he's the historian um and I I I merely feel like I should mention it for some kind of to render some kind of service to my country people um but it's an Italian history book and it sounds very important uh and fascinating it's called Di Dolore Ostello um, which means sort of House of Pain, it's a Dante reference, but it's uh, Pagine di Storia Italiana, which is Pages of Italian History, and it's edited by Paolo Bernardini, and this was chosen by uh, Felipe Fernandez Amesto. Um, and it seems like a really interesting concept. It's based on the premise that Italian history has been just a, a magnificent, which is a very generous word, I suppose, <laughs> magnificent but painful um, series of, of, of clashes and, and, and uh, battles and misunderstandings and invasions. Uh, and all of this makes it, it makes it unique, obviously. Um, and so this book goes through 37 volumes of Italian history published in either in Italian or abroad, uh, published in the past 10 years and kind of I think just presents them as 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 kind of fragments. I, I'm sort of imagining. I haven't seen the book, but I'm imagining this really incredible modernist retelling of history in which these fragments enter into a kind of dialogue with each other, um, which just sounds like if it is what I am I am imagining that it sounds like a very clever and original contribution. Uh, I think. Um, so I just wanted to mention that as I felt I should, um, but I do genuinely really really like the sound of as in would like to be gifted. Uh, a book mentioned by Marina Warner, which is called Accidental Gods on Men Unwittingly Turned Divine. Um, and it's published by Metropolitan and it's by Anna de la Subin. And it's it's sort of it, it traces this this line of 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 of, of history which sees 
cults appear centered on strange, unlikely candidates. So there's Captain Cook, um, Prince Philip is, 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 a, is an obvious one. So that's a reference to the religious sect followed by, um, <laughs> but have you heard yeah. of it? It's um, the cast on people in Vanuatu. I have vaguely, yes, yeah. It's, like, yeah. it's cargo cults, aren't they? They're called cargo cults, those ones, yeah. Exactly, and so they, they believe in the divinity of, of the late Duke of Edinburgh. Um, so Marina Warner says, um, Voltairean mockery would would be easy and it certainly certainly would it is um but the book's strength lies in the sensitivity of her analysis which homes in on the uh, interrelations of power and powerlessness colonialism and nationalism worship as a response to terror and a desire to propitiate so i think that sounds fascinating and i thought it was out in january so i'm not sure if she might be breaking the rules maybe it came out earlier in america i think there's an american version which is which is the one that she's seen the other book um, I was drawn to is one that Stephen Brown mentions. He says, uh, War and Peace was published 57 years after Napoleon invaded Russia. And Almudena Grandes is the Frozen Heart, um, El Corazón Helado, published by Weidenfeld, came 68 years after the Spanish Civil War. He says, I draw the comparison deliberately, but cannot defend it without collapsing into tired phrases like acute observation, meticulous research, compelling characterization." the evocation of an era. Better just to sum it up as betrayal, 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 betrayal. So that just sounds like a bloody good novel. So I would, I would take that one. Like a fun read. Yes, exactly. Bit of betrayal, I think, was the thing I picked up from that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's the theme. <laughs> Any surprising omissions? I was quite surprised not to see Sally Rooney, purely because I'm sure she's featured on every Books of the Year roundup for the past couple of years. But isn't everyone over Sally Rooney? Isn't that the thing? That you, can't, you can't say Sally Rooney now because, you know, the, the, the third one wasn't as good as the first two. And everyone's yeah, moved on. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Any other surprising omissions? Um, it's such no. <laughs> a good question that we're thinking very deeply about it. I feel bad for Sally Rooney. Did the promise get mentioned? I don't think I saw the promise. Oh, no, it didn't. It. I've only just realised that. But yeah, so the book a winner, the promise, which is extremely good. Well done, Toby. Um, yes, that's, that's an interesting omission, actually. Yeah. Well, then we refer listeners back two episodes, is it? A couple of weeks ago, you interviewed Damon Galgut? A couple of weeks there you ago. Go. So we can remedy that one easily enough. Um, for, for any listeners who are interested in the Browning type reference, I have looked it up. Oh. I think we all are, let's face it. I think we all are. It comes from a poem called Pippa Passes. Um, and this is the section in which he uses the word. Uh, I'm just going to launch straight into it. But at night, brother Howlett, far over the woods, toll the world to thy chantry, sing to the bats' sleek sisterhoods, full compliance with gallantry. Then owls and bats, cowls and twats, monks and nuns in cloisters' moods, adjourn <laughs> to the oak stump country. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> so even better, even better than that, according to the site that I found this on, he got the word from a, a poem of 1660 called Vanity of Vanities. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll read the, the line from that. They talked of his having a cardinal's hat. They'd send him as soon as an old nun's twat. And he misinterpreted this to, 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 to believe that uh, a twat was a wimple. Oh, bless him. So there you go. Thank you. I'm so grateful. I'm stunned into silence now. (laughs) Poor Robert Browning. Pippa Passes is about, you know, 300 pages long or something. And and that's all he's going to be remembered for, for that that poem. It's a very very famous poem, isn't it? 
It's a great poem, yeah. yes, because she passes by. She it's her one free day of the year. Poor Pippa. She's she works every day of the year, and he he follows her passage as I vaguely remember this poem uh, around as she passes outside um, much richer and happier people's doors and windows and listens in. Poor Robert Browning. Well, you took something that was funny and made it made it very melancholy, David. Uh, always here. <laughs> Well, or he stopped us just talking about the rude word and talked about the great work of literature in which the rude word is embedded. Never again. <laughs> An elevated thing somewhat. <laughs> right, well, I think we should I think we should leave it there now. Still to come on the show, after digesting other people's selections for books of the year, we editors shall make our own. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, perhaps you'll consider subscribing to the TLS itself. Should you wish to do so, you'll find all the options and details online at the-tls.co.uk, which is also where I believe you will find the books of the year feature in its massive entirety. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi and I'm here with Lucy Dallas, David Horsepool and Toby Lishtig. And we're working our way through 12 months of the best books as chosen by some of our contributors. So now it's time to bring our own favourites into the fold. Who wants to go first? David? 
All right, then. I was holding back from the ones that have been omitted because I'm going to stick to the same rules that we ask our contributors to follow. So I won't mention my friend Francis Wilson's brilliant biography of D.H. Lawrence, Burning Man. Uh, but I'll point you instead in the direction of Ronald Hutton's book, The Making of Oliver Cromwell, which is the first volume of a projected two-volume biography. And Hutton knows that, you know, Cromwell's been written about quite a lot, but also that nobody's really nailed him down yet. He, he just, he's very um, Macavity the mystery cat. David, I think you're being very modest here. One person has definitively nailed him down, I think, in the past few years. There's one book about him. We oh, well, that's un- terribly Unequivocally kind of recommend. <laughs> uh, I, that couldn't be more untrue, though, as well. You're referring to a tiny book that I wrote, which particularly concentrated on him as uh, a sort of quasi-king, um, because it was part of a series about monarchs. And this, uh, Rhonda Hutton's book is, um, certainly this volume is, only takes him up to um, the end of the first civil war when um, Charles handed himself over to the Scots, who then passed him eventually to the English. Um, and so we've still got a long way to go before Cromwell ends up there. Um, and I like to think, because he had a lot more room than me, uh, Ronald Hutton's um, particular, I think, as well as he, he really does seem to um, have a, a really full uh, picture of Cromwell. What I really especially liked about the book was he puts in this kind of fantastic background um, to, of the landscape and the way that the, the world would have looked and felt uh, at the time of Cromwell. So you get the kind of um, the water world that he was he grew up in in Huntingdon and St Ives and Ely, um, which is around the Great Ooze. And and then when we move to to London, he doesn't. I mean, every other biographer um, would just sort of say he started his career in Parliament. This is what happened. Um, these are the times when he spoke. But Ronald Hutton starts off by telling us exactly where he would have been, what Parliament looked like. It was the rebuilt 14th century St. Stephen's Chapel and the medieval palace of Westminster. And he tells us about its very high roof and its double tier of Gothic windows and um, whether they were uh, glazed with um, uh, painted windows or clear, you know, what the place looked like and what it felt like. Um, and, and what a vote entailed. Um, rather interesting to me, a, a vote in Parliament. In those, it doesn't sound massively different to a pre-pandemic, at least, vote now. I mean, the whole locking the lobbies thing that, you know, had already begun then and tellers counted everyone back in. We really do do exactly what we did over 300 mm-hmm. years ago in that, in that respect. I think you can always tell with biographies. Is Hutton, you know, is he sympathetic? Is he, is he well disposed to his subject? Is there, is there a warmth? That's a really good question. I think he, he's careful not to sort of buy into Cromwell too much, um, which I suppose as a, a sort of modern, unless you happen to be fanatically religious yourself, um, I mean, a, a lot more than sort of just a, a believer, um, you probably wouldn't buy into to Cromwell's world outlook. 
but um, Cromwell sort of genuinely believed what he believed and believed in the rightness of his cause um, and thought and was a man of his time in some of the ways that he acted. But he also, Hutton shows that he was a great self-promoter. He was quite canny about using uh, the medium of print to um, make sure that his name was always in the front of things. And yet you can't actually pin him down for having done that himself. There's no point at which you can say, aha, look at him saying uh, it was all me. In fact, he makes a great point of writing letters to Parliament saying, give all the glory to God. Um, you know, I just happen to be there kind of thing mm -hmm. after another victory. Um, but the effect is to constantly promote Cromwell, who, after all, by the end of the First of all, was not in charge of any, anything beyond the, uh, the cavalry of Parliament. He was Lieutenant General of, of Parliamentary Horse, but he had become the kind of star attraction of the parliamentary cause. And as the country descended back into civil war, he, he would kind of come up further, but that will be for the, the next Hutton volume, which I'm really looking forward to. And when will that come? I would not be surprised if the next volume appears next year, but equally well, it is a massive undertaking, so one could give him a little bit more time. Lucy, what book or books would you like to talk about then? Well, I was thinking about this, as is only right and proper, and <laughs> slightly to my own surprise, I think I would... One of them is Clara and the Sun by Katsuro Ishiguro, which if you'd asked me just after I'd read it, I'd have said... Oh, I don't know about Book of the Year, you know, thought thought was very interesting and all of that, but it sort of stayed with me. And it's it's I think it's very difficult to do what he's done. It's it seems very simple. And I think something seeming that simple um, that actually has got a, an awful lot of thought and emotion and um, sort of questioning behind it. I think that's very difficult. What has he done just for anyone who, who, who missed it? Clara is a, uh, a robot, an AI, uh, and she is a companion um, to a child. And it's about illness. The child becomes ill and there's a question about what Clara's role is going to be in the family. Um, but there's all, it makes you think and care about all sorts of things. And one of them is uh, Anne Enright did a very good review of it in another publication other than the TLS. So I probably shouldn't mention it. Um, <laughs> and she did a, it was a brilliant review. And but the only um, problem I had with it was the first line because she said something like, um, "Oh, that he he wants to make us care about a robot." And the funny thing is, we do. I didn't find that funny at all. My, I'm always moaning on that in science fiction, people have been writing robots that you care deeply about in mm. AI for years and years and years. But he does a very good job of making you care about the robot, but also about the humans. And you have to think about the relationships between the robots and the humans, how they treat each other. And in the near future in which it's set, um, there's a distinction between different sorts of humans as well, as it were, because of the rise of technology. And it's just, it's very, as I say, it seems very simple. Uh, but but and I don't think it is. Um, I completely agree with you, Lucy. I, I read this earlier in the year, and I, I was really blown away by it. And I was a bit uh, anxious because I'm a big fan of Ishiguro, but I also have felt that his last few books actually have been not quite as good as his earlier work. And and I, I always come back to his 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 what I call his masterwork, The Unconsoled, which was written in the mid '90s. And this sort of has the new one has the kind of the turbulent surrealism of it and I think it is the best book he's written since then 
um, you know, his best book in about 25 years or so. I, I, I really thought it was brilliant. And interestingly, his, you know, Ishiguri's great friend Ian McEwen also took on the, the robot book, as it were, a couple of years previously, Machines Like Me. And it is a very mm. hard thing to do. And I think the McEwen book is, it's good. Um, I like it more than lots of other people do, but it's, it's, it's pretty flawed. And I think the Ishiguri book is much, much better. And I think he's really taken on that difficult theme and really succeeded. Obviously, he's, he's a huge name. He's a Nobel Prize winner now. It's a, it's a brilliant book and it was very well reviewed. And I sort of feel everyone's sort of forgotten about it now. It only came mm. out about seven or eight months ago. And I'm, I'm, gl- mm. I'm glad you brought it up because actually I'd almost forgotten about it. And I wasn't particularly going to mention it today. Um, but that's what I mean. It sort of stayed with me. And I don't think my yeah. initial reaction was as strong as yours. I liked it. I really liked it, but it, but it, but it's still, it's still around as it were. Mm. So I I sort of like it even more from a distance as it were. I also would recommend uh, Tamima Anam's The Startup Wife, which is also about, is about tech as well, actually. It's really, it's really good fun novel about tech and sort of social media. It's not all fun actually, but some of it is. It's very sharp and quick. It's some of the best writing about, it's about sort of workplace and tech that I've read I think there's quite a lot of sort of broad attempts at writing about people in tech from people who aren't in tech I think it's quite difficult to do uh, and that's just a really 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 good novel and can I cheat do one more go on then it's a massive cheat because it's not from 2021 so so one of those cheats <laughs> I just was I uh, read uh, Richard powers the overstory because it was just really terrific and that's really stayed with me as well and it's also it's a bit like your one that you mentioned about is about chickens and it's about grief and loneliness and this one is about all sorts of things but it's also about trees so it tells Mm. you stuff and you get a whole wonderful fictional world along with the stuff which is real and you know tangible and very urgent actually Mm. and that's um that's three novels there lucy have you found yourself i don't know reading more fiction than in previous years or I'm I'm only asking because I've definitely been reading more fiction in the past 12 months um, than in any other year I think and I don't know why that is apart from just I could lazily explain it as some kind of retreat from from the world and from the present moment. I don't know maybe yes maybe a bit more but actually part of the reason I like all three of them is because they are they're absolutely about stuff that's going on so it's not that they don't feel relevant, but not relevant in a kind of... Not in a newsy um, way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Particularly the overstory, mm. which has a kind of um, the sort of time on it because it's talking about trees. So it goes mm. back as old as the oldest trees, which is pretty old. Toby, how about you? What have you enjoyed this year? Slightly unsurprisingly, given that I'm a fiction editor, I have read quite a lot of fiction. Um, I, I think it's been an incredibly good year for fiction I really do I think um you know I think the book a long list reflected that we, you know we had Ishiguro on it as you know I'm a big fan of the Damon Galga I liked Richard Powers's follow-up novel um Bewilderment very much which was shortlisted um there's a new Jonathan Franson which I think Thea you might want to talk about I've mentioned Sarah uh, Sarah Hall already I mean there, there was just some really fascinating stuff a novel that came out earlier in the year by um a uh, daily novelist called Raven Lalani called Luster. Um, but anyway, I'm not going to trot through everything. But there are a couple of novels that didn't sort of make any prize lists that I just want to quickly flag because they're, they're both brilliant. And actually, they, they both did make their way into books of the year. Um, one is by Gwendolyn Riley. It's called My Phantoms. Uh, and it was the choice of, uh, of DJ Taylor. 
Um, and it's it's if you like Gwendolyn Riley, you will love this book. It's 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 just very very her. It's icy cool. It's about a, a very difficult relationship between a mother uh, and her daughter, or rather a daughter and her mother, because the daughter is a narrator. It takes the same structure and form, really, and theme of pretty much all her fiction. Um, it's it's just Gwendolyn Riley writing at the height of her powers. It is so acutely observed. She really nails this very particular sort of repressed. Englishness. Um, it's very funny. Um, and well, I, I'm going to read Dave, uh, D, DJ Taylor's description because I think he'll do a better job than me. He calls it a wonderfully edgy account of a mother daughter relationship running into trouble full of the nervy dialogue and head on psychological collisions for which Riley really ought to take out some kind of patent. He's <laughs> quite right about that. It's really, really good. And I, you know, she is, she is one of my favourite contemporary authors. Um, Another book is by Natasha Brown, uh, a debut novelist. Uh, it's called Assembly. It was, this one was chosen by Anna Katarina Schaff. Um, and I read it earlier in the year and I was just completely bowled over by the prose. It's just, again, it's these sort of the observational quality. It's, it's um, you know, not, not an awful lot happens. It's about um, a, a young black woman and her relationship with her posh white boyfriend and his family and she basically goes to stay with them for a weekend and has to deal with all the class and race tensions that come with that she works for a bank and has had to deal with um you know a lot of those issues in the, during the course of her job and it's just the kind of the, the the observations of contemporary britain and what it is to be a young black woman striving in this you know very difficult culture to strive in um and it's just really beautifully brilliantly done so i, I massively recommend that to, to anyone anna katarina schaffner says at the novel's heart is a deeply disturbing bartleby-esque act of existential refusal well i can i can slightly allude to that because i'm not giving too much away basically at the, at the beginning we learn that she's very unwell uh, she's diagnosed with cancer and she's sort of running through the, the book is this sort of question about of, of what to what to do with this diagnosis it's really it's, it's really brilliant hmm. the the other one uh just to move away from fiction and i did mention this on the podcast a while ago i think is uh, it's a book that was out last month called the dawn of everything a new history of humanity uh by the late uh anthropologist david graber um who was also integral to the occupy movement um he was a, he was a he was a an anarchist um, and this was sort of his meister work he'd been working on it for about 10 10 or 12 years and he very very sadly died just as the manuscript was getting ready he wrote it in conjunction with an archaeologist called David Vengro and it's basically one of those deep histories that seeks to overturn all those other quite blokey deep histories the sort of Jared Diamonds and uh, Yuval Noah Harari's sort of history of civilization it's it's very very complicated um but it's its general thesis is to sort of overturn this idea of the primitive savage and to, it sort of starts off by critiquing where the idea of the primitive savage came from in the 18th century and then to sort of discuss the political implications of this and the way it's sort of been used by both the left and right but it basically it trawls through the last 30,000 years plus of history to sort of look at the different ways in which we've organized ourselves and just to give a far more complex portrait of human organization and hierarchy and subjugation and 
structuring, I guess, than, than sort of we have previously thought. It's pretty tendentious in places, I would say. I mean, there's lots of kind of like using very particular examples to extrapolate. And I think it's kind of, you know, it's meant to, to get you thinking and to, to sort of cause arguments as much as anything else. But I've mm. found it really formidable. It sounds like there might be some overlap as well with the book that um, Lucy mentioned earlier, um, uh, Raymond Tallis's selection, Humankind, A Hopeful History. Uh, by the Dutch historian and journalist Rutger Bregman. Um, if, if, it, if it is that sense of overturning the idea of an intrinsic violence. Well, actually it is because, so, so one of their contentions is that, you know, sort of this idea that as soon as we started farming and settling and organising into society, that's, that's when inequality began. And that sort of, you know, and sort of contemporary inequality and all the violence that goes with that stems from that. It completely sort of unsettles that and says, well, no, actually... We were very unequal at times when we were hunter-gatherers and uh, we were also not necessarily unequal when we were settling. Anyway, it wasn't as simple as that because everyone was doing different things at different times for different purposes and therefore nothing is set. And sort of the optimism of it is therefore, you know, (laughs) our world is a blank slate and we can, you know, we can do whatever we want to do. Um, Yeah, I think it probably does do a very sort of similar sort of unsettling. Hmm. Well, you hesitated, I think, before you were, you were hesitating over whether or not to mention Jonathan Franzen. And then you said that I would. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm not really sure if I should or I shouldn't really, because it would be wrong of me to say that it's my book of the year or one of my books of the year, because I haven't finished reading it. I'm not that far into it, but I'm enjoying it. So I can say that. Um, I think I hesitate and I don't know whether this is also why you hesitate or not, but um, to mention him because he can be a bit uh, sort of um, shallow, (laughs) a bit zeitgeisty, I suppose. Um, Whereas this one seems more mature. And as I say, I'm only about, you know, only about 80 pages in, and I think it's 500 pages long. So I really can't say it's one of my books of the year, but I bought it on the strength of Edmund Gordon's review um, in our pages. It was that that convinced me because he said, um, he summed it up as, uh, Crossroads is largely free from the vices to which Franzen's previous work has been addicted. The self-conscious topicality, the show-off sophistication, the formal heavy-handedness. It retains many of his familiar virtues, the robust characterization, the escalating comedy, the virtuosic command of narrative rhythm. So it's a, it's a very traditional novel. Um, he says both in its, you know, both in its form, it's about uh, this, the various members of an unhappy family, um, and there's a there's a third person omniscient uh, narrator, and it's about their preoccupations. So it's very it's very simple. It's you know faith, love, uh, generational strife, uh, this kind of vague but powerful idea of of, of virtue, what it is to be good, um, and it centres on the Hildebrands uh, family. Um, and and I just I, th- I suppose what what I find interesting apart from the fact that it seems like Franzen has perhaps, it seems strange to say this of, of, of a man who's not exactly a spring chicken, but um, he seems to have matured perhaps in this novel. I think um, you're absolutely I mean, right. I yeah. think you're absolutely right. I, I, so I, I have read it all. Um, and I, I think Edmund's take was actually spot on. And I think your, <laughs> your decision to read it on the back of that piece is spot on <laughs> as well. I, I mean, so it's the first part of a trilogy. It's set in 1971, hence the sort of the, the lack of topicalities, you know, the way at least he's, you know, he's been able to squirm free of some of the more obvious topicalities. Um, I just think it's totally 
be brilliant. Um, it's, as you said, pretty traditional. It's very funny. It's very moving in places. It's got the element of religion in it, which mm. none of his previous novels have. Um, he, he grew up um, in this, well, you know, when he's a teenager, he joined this sort of kind of hippie-ish Christian community. Um, and that's, that's an interesting aspect to it. But, I, you know, it's been a long time since I read The Corrections, which is generally regarded as his best work. And I really think it's up there with that. Mm. Um, I think it's it's really really impressive, and I'm extremely excited about the next two. Mm. I mean, you know, they'll, they'll probably come out slowly. They're, they're they're big novels, and he takes his time, and and, and you know, so should he. Um, it's just great. It's and it's 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 funny. I you know, I it's, it's really nice to be made to laugh by books. Yes, but I think that, I think that's partly partly it. Okay, so I'll persist with that, and maybe it will be my book of the year for next year. Although there's a whole twelve months between now and then, so who could possibly say? Um, so one of my actual books of 2021, um, I'm on much firmer footing here, um, is also centred, funnily enough, on a man of the cloth, um, sort of. So it's The Books of Jacob by Olga Tokarczuk. Um, and I have to give the full title here. So it's The Books of Jacob or A Fantastic Journey Across Seven Borders, Five Languages and Three Major Religions, Not Counting the Minor Sects, Told by the Dead, Supplemented by the Author, Drawing from a Range of Books and Aided by Imagination, The Witch Being the Greatest Natural Gift of Any Person, That the Wise Might Have It for a Record, That My Compatriots Reflect, Lay Persons Gain Some Understanding, and Melancholy Souls Obtain Some Slight Enjoyment. And That's a that brilliant, is, brilliant title. It's wonderful. It takes up the whole of the... I have a proof copy of it and it takes up the whole of the front cover. I don't know how they'll style it on, on the finished one. I haven't taken a look, but I mean, it's Fitzcarraldo. So the, the book design is always just a, a very simple one, just blue for fiction with the whole title on the page. So I don't see how else they could do it, but it is wonderful. And it does sum up the whole book. It's this vast sweeping uh, historical novel. It's like a thousand pages long. I have it here. So it's a thousand pages long. And this is what it sounds like when I drop it on the table. <laughs> I think the book itself took almost a decade to write and it, it I mean it really shows the depth of of the research and the thought and 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 the vision because it's not just it's not just historical detail it's it's philosophical kind of engagement as well on on Tokarczuk's part and it's divided into seven books and it's basically it, it the, the title subject is Jacob Frank who's this uh, Polish Jew who announced himself as the second coming um in the second half of the 18th, uh, 18th century. And the novel is a collection of other people's observations of him um, and his, his, his growing influence. And it's, it's, it's just incredible, uh, really awe-inspiring work of multi-ventriloquism, I suppose. I can't even imagine how Jennifer Croft began to think about translating it. I really recommend it. I mean, it begins in 1750s Poland, which is part of Poland, which is now the Ukraine. Um, and so you meet this strange and beguiling uh, young Jewish man who seems to have come from nowhere. He seems like the, the definition of rootless. And, and he starts to have these divine um, experiences and soon people start to attach themselves to him. And it all goes from there, really. And he's traveling widely and reinventing himself and being attacked one moment and chased out of town and revered the next. And his followers um, do exactly that. They follow him and they're looking for a land in which to to settle and be free from from persecution but there's all of these wild stories circulating him and what he represents as well you know the the, the sort of behavior that we we tend to expect of a, of a cult leader it dovetails with your um the earlier the marina it Warren. does it does i seem to be completely obsessed with <laughs> with religion 
and, mm. and the ridiculousness of the ways in which it can be formed on the basis of, of, of just hope, really. I suppose that's the thing at, at, the, at the root of this book, of, of, um, of the books of Jacob, is this message about how desperate we all are to believe in something that can save us. Now that you've said it, Lucy, I see that that's a thread that runs through every book that I've selected, whether whether a book that I've read or one that I want to read. So I don't know what my therapist will have to say about that. <laughs> I was going to say, answers on a postcard, please. <laughs> I think we should probably leave it there before we get too deep into my soul. Yeah, I think we should. <laughs> um, general observations, anyone, uh, anything else to add about this year? Yes, I've got one thing to add. It was a choice by Paul Griffiths. Um, he said he wanted to reread the novels of Rosalind Belbin because it's her 80th birthday. And I read that and thought, I don't know who Rosalind Belbin is. I don't know if anyone else had that experience. Mm. Um, then I looked her up and she looks, she looks really interesting. So there you go. Time for a revival then. Yeah, happy 80th birthday, Rosalind Belbin. And, you know, may your fiction be revived via Paul Griffiths and Books of the Year because, you know, it looks like there's a very interesting back catalogue there. Brilliant. So an end of the year becomes a beginning. Absolutely. Yes. Wonderful. Well, that is all we have time for this week. We'll leave it on that very uh, positive and regenerative note. Our thanks go to David Horspool and Toby Lishtig. And of course, Lucy Dallas, thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week, but from now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.